We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast, where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. My guest today is Colleen Francis, author of Right on the Money, New Principles for Bold Growth. Colleen is brilliant at sales strategy. She's advised John Deere, Merck, Merrill Lynch, Dow, and hundreds of other companies on how to accelerate sales while reducing effort and increasing profits. Um, so Colleen, I loved your book. And one of the most you know, kind of, I guess the whole premise of the book is that this is an evolutionary moment for sales. Can you tell me a little bit about why you say that? Yeah, thanks for saying that, Amanda. You know, it is, we've been evolving in sales for a lot of years. And as a result of the pandemic, um, what we found is that evolution probably became a revolution. (laughs) Things moved so quickly as soon as salespeople were forced to sit at their desks behind their screens and buyers were locked down and not able to see people. Um, what happened as a, at the same time is buyers became even busier than before because a lot of companies had COVID casualties, as one of my clients likes to put it, right? <laughs> they downsized their staff. They worked harder to try to either maintain their revenues or grow their revenues or just, you know, stay the course and not fall too far into the negative. So we had busier than ever before buyers. We had fewer buyers. We had people locked down um, and having to interact in a virtual way all within a span of maybe like two months. And so we had to revolutionize the way we sell in order to meet the needs of that new buyer. So how have you... You know, so many salespeople that I work with were used to traveling. They actually enjoyed traveling. They enjoyed dine, whining and dining and these sorts of things. <laughs> and they were really disoriented. I mean, or just feeling kind of a sense of loss in a, in a way. Have you seen that almost all of them have successfully made the transition or have some just said, this isn't for me? You know, most of them have made the transition. Um, They've either had to um, or they've realized that they should. So early on in 2020, we did have some clients who sort of crossed their arms and just said, I'm waiting this out. I'm not going to do this Zoom thing or I'm not going to do this video thing. When things go back to normal, I will, you know, start selling again. And what they found is that even as companies opened up and they were allowed to be back on site, that there were restrictions in place. It was still difficult. They still had customers locking them out. They still had customers who were working in this hybrid, some people remote, some people on site, and that it was highly inefficient for them to keep this arms crossed, you know, (laughs) foot down, stomping around, I'm not going to do it. Many salespeople realized that they could be much more efficient and much more profitable meeting the needs of the new buyer by being um, remote, by making calls, making Zoom calls, sending more emails than having to be on the road all the time. And frankly, a lot of companies also pulled back on their expense accounts. I've got clients who said to their team, hey, you guys proved that you can be really efficient working remotely 
And so your car allowances, your entertainment allowances, your travel allowances have all been cut by 25%. Or more. Yeah. Other companies did that just simply because they need, yeah, we needed to return to profitability. And so I saw some sales VPs just say, you know, no travel, um, you know, or no sales kickoffs or no more whining and dining, you know, customers for a period of time. So some of it was forced, I guess, by companies. And some of it was a realization where sellers went, you know what, I can work this way really successfully. And you know what, Amanda, I had sales VPs who said to me, I have gone to every single one of my kids' little league games this year, and I don't want to go back to 100 days on the road. I realized how nice it was to have dinner with my family every night. <laughs> yep, I've I've seen the exact same thing. And, and even if you had your travel budget back and you were able to travel, and even if there weren't, quote, COVID restrictions, people's calendars have just really morphed into something completely different than what they used to be. And people don't have a couple of hours to spend going out to lunch anymore because, you know, with the availability of Zoom being so easy, people's calendars have gotten filled up. We're meeting with a much more diverse group of people. Like I've just noticed that um, people have been able to work more in a team way, more globally across the, the globe on accounts together, for instance. And that brings up another thing that I found really, um, you know, helpful in your book is how you talked about getting more people involved in the selling process and getting more people from the customer side involved in the buying process. Tell me a little bit about that and how that might have changed over the last couple of years as well. We've seen a real explosion in team selling um, and companies are recognizing that the more people they get involved from both the buying and the selling side, uh, the faster the sales go, the bigger the sales go (laughs) um, and they're closing more deals. We're seeing uh, clients say that they're closing ratios are jumping from, you know, 35 to 40% all the way up to 60% when they had at least four people from the client side on the call or involved in the process and a couple of people from their own side. One of the reasons this started to happen is it became easier to get people involved when we're working remotely, right? Um, Like you said, if there's global people that need to be involved, we can all get together at a convenient time on the phone um, or over a video call. It was easier for decision makers, executives to just pop onto a video call or a Zoom call. There was kind of less um, less obligation, you know. The, it was easier for them to pop in and pop out, and it was way easier for you to get uh, as a seller to get your buyers involved. What I love about this, and it's something we've been preaching for years, is because it was easier, and salespeople embraced this notion, and now they've seen such great results. They're continuing to do that regardless of whether they can be in front of the customer or not. Right. I like the the idea of popping in, and that's what I've noticed as well. A senior person that you can't, you just can't get on their calendar for an hour, you can get on their calendar for 10 minutes. And so the pop-in factor adds so much credibility from both the buyer's side and the seller's side to just come in and say, hey, I really appreciate you all meeting with us. This is, we know this, this is a really important relationship that we have with you. Whatever it is, it just adds that extra layer of credibility and respect, kind of. Absolutely, it does. And you know what we also found is that working remotely with clients, especially in a video format, 
it's 25% more efficient in terms of time. Do you think, you know, like an hour meeting takes 45 minutes or, uh, you know, half an hour meeting takes 20 minutes, but it doesn't erode the credibility or the trust at all. So with your existing customers, using this kind of a format will actually save everybody time, which I'm sure buyers and sellers need back. And it doesn't erode your relationship with them. And so why wouldn't you continue to use this format? I agree. It's very interesting that some people that I've only started working with during the last two years, they thought that I went to meet somebody at their office and I'd never been to their office. I'd never met them in person. We met for a while and I was leaving and he was saying, well, you've been here before. And I was like, no, I've never, we've only worked together remotely. And, and he just didn't realize it. So um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was saying, well, you can't build trust without being in person. But you're telling me that based on your experience with your clients, actually, you can build trust without being in Absolutely. person. Absolutely. And I, like you, have had this happen in my own consulting practice. I've definitely, you know, sold and onboarded and executed with clients in a completely remote fashion over the last two years. But it's not just people like us as consultants. My clients in oil and gas, my clients in manufacturing, my clients in, you know, tool and die making, my clients in software have all had this successful uh, practice over the last couple of years of finding prospects, converting them to customers and onboarding them um, and now maintaining loyalty all without meeting them. And these were, in some cases, environments where the sellers were used to cold calling in person you know, door knocking, popping in to take orders. And all of a sudden, they've been able to transform their business. Buyers love it. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to go 100% remote, but we do know, based on studies from Gartner, that over the last couple of years, um, people in decision-making positions prefer a sellerless environment. In fact, 44% of the youngest buyers in the channel right now prefer a sellerless environment. And 33% of all buyers, regardless of their um, their age or their tenure. So we're moving towards this environment that people want to do a lot of the, the buying online. And you know, and I I blame Amazon. <laughs> Guilty as charged, right? We just got so used to being able to buy everything from groceries to personal goods to equipment for our businesses online, we're thinking, well, why can't we buy, you know, oil and gas? Why can't we buy consulting services? Why can't we buy computer equipment that way too? Yeah. You tell a really good story in your book about how you called one of your vendors with a very specific request to order a certain thing. And they said, you can't order that over the phone. Give me a break. That's so funny. (laughs) That was really funny. We were like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But more and more of that is happening. It's crazy. (laughs) So when you say, you you use the word Amazon, I don't even know if I can say this, Amazonification (laughs) of sales. Yes. Uh, What what other... What other aspects of that is it? Are you just talking about the fact that people expect to do work without actually having to talk to a person or <laughs> yeah, what, what is the experience that they're expecting? Well, I don't think that they're expecting necessarily to be able to transact an entire business to business sale without interacting. They prefer it. Um, And they prefer it, at least on the front end. What's happening is this is still a pretty 
um, risky environment from a buying perspective, especially if somebody is buying something new for the first time or switching vendors. So what we're finding is um, it's about 75% of engagements start with the buyers doing a search, doing research. And if you think about it, what they're saying to themselves is, look, I've got a limited amount of time out there to make a decision. And I know that salespeople are going to try to, quote unquote, sell me. So I'm going to do all the research up front. I'm going to get referrals. I'm going to talk to my friends. I'm going to talk to my colleagues. I'm going to talk to my association so that I develop, um, you know, one or two solutions in my own mind that I think are uh, risk-free, or I think will solve the problem. So I don't have to waste my time and get wrapped up in salespeople confusing me, right? <laughs> and then once I've made that decision, I'll call the one or two people that I think can help so that they can show me what the right options are, or they can solidify my own feeling. But buyers don't want to sort of get wrapped up in having whole bunch of salespeople present things to them and then them having to sort of scratch their head and wade through and think, oh, I don't know, who can I trust? Who can't I trust? They want to go into the relationship already feeling like they trust you. That makes a lot of sense. And so the point that you make in your book is responding really quickly when those calls come in is essential. And you you give a couple of examples of how people uh, fail to respond quickly and they they just instantly lose the sale. What what have you seen being most successful in terms of being able to respond to qu- extremely quickly to leads with a high enough powered salesperson to be able to, you know, respond to the to the buyer's needs? Yeah, you know, I like what you said there about with the higher, you know, with the highest level of salesperson because I believe we're in a wait, 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 hurry up market right now. So buyers are kind of biding their time. They're doing the research, you know, offline, online, um, in off hours when they've got time to do this. And they're making decisions really quickly because they've got so much on their plate. You know, long-term planning is five days (laughs) from now. Mm -hmm. So when they're ready and they engage and they call or they email to engage with you, they're ready to make a decision. So a huge mistake companies make would be to put those leads, those hot leads, through some kind of um, junior level sales intake um, program, who then have to put them through another, you know, account manager or territory manager, a multi-step process, because these guys have already decided what they want to buy or not. They need some tweaking and some nuancing, but they want to move fast. So leads that come inbound where people have raised their hand need to go to that territory manager, for lack of a better word, or the sales rep who's working in that patch as quickly as possible. And we found that um, a response time of an hour is what's going to get the business. So there was an accidental experiment that happened between two of my clients selling the same products in the same market, distributor versus the wholesaler. And the difference between the wholesaler having a 48-hour turnaround and the distributor having a one-hour turnaround was a 12 times greater closing ratio. So the one hour turnaround time in the same market with the same leads on the same products had a 12 times better closing ratio than a 48 hour response time. Well, 48 hours just seems like an eternity these days, doesn't it? it? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. 
Absolutely, it does. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, 24 hours even seems like an eternity. And, and, you know, maybe if they had, we were comparing a one hour to a 24 hour, maybe we'd see, you know, a six times <laughs> response rate, but the or closing rate increase. But the reality is, is regardless of the market we look at, 75% of the sales go to the vendor who responded first, period. Mm -hmm. And so you need to figure out as an organization, how do we get these leads into the hands of an experienced salesperson who can help the customer quickly, um, you know, provide them the information they need, qualify the lead and get them closed. How are you seeing the either organizational structure or the definition of roles changing? Because so many companies that I work with have had an inside sales team and an outside sales team. And they've just had this idea in their mind that the outside sales people are, you know, more experienced, more knowledgeable about the product, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the inside sales people are a little bit more order takers and customer service follow-up people. But then that all got upended when you know, everybody's working inside. So what have you seen in terms of how either the roles are described differently now, or maybe the organizational structure is shifting a little bit? What are you seeing there? Well, we're starting to see some companies take what was traditionally called a BDS or a business development specialist. Um, You know, the for lack of a better word, the cold calling team that was there to create leads to pass on to the sales team. We're starting to see that team um, morph into a more experienced, um, seasoned team. Uh, Because what we found is that buyers don't have time to talk to someone who can't help them and see themselves all the way through. So, you know, as I said to one of my clients, so you're asking your least experienced sales team, your most junior sales team to make calls into your most seasoned senior decision makers. Like, (laughs) that makes no sense to me, right? (laughs) Why Mm -hmm. would you do that? (laughs) And they realized, oh, you know what, you're right, we need to kind of reposition this and not have this junior team necessarily. The team that's making calls to qualify and find leads needs to be able to have high level discussions with VP level people. Um, And so we're seeing kind of a balancing, I guess, of um, just a seller in the territory. And whether that seller is working inside or outside is really dependent on the type of market that they're in, the maturity of the client base, whether they're working new leads, um, or whether or not the sales team is remote, because there have been very effective sales. Um, I'm thinking about one of my software clients uh, in the last year or two, where there are $100,000 opportunities plus in markets where we're carving out a new um, solution um, that are all made inside by an experienced inside sales team. And so why wouldn't you reward the sales team for being that efficient? So that's the kind of kind of morphing that we're seeing is this kind of blending of inside sales, um, BDS and, and territory to really one role or maybe two roles inside that territory that can work as a team. Now, there still is a, I think, I see still as a requirement for that kind of inside sales that is more the customer service and order taking role to support an existing account. So if you've got a marketplace where the customers are doing repeat orders, for example, you get them and you know every month they have to repeat um, or every quarter they have to repeat, then a customer service slash inside salesperson is a great person to have there so that they become the point person for the customer should their 
territory rep, territory manager, um, not be available. And they can work as a team then as well from a timing perspective. That makes sense. So maybe we rename it uh, instead of inside sales, we call it account management or you know, existing account leader or something like that. That's good. We're seeing a lot of that. Yes. Um, You know, I think the account management role is so critical because what clients found, especially through the pandemic, is that uh, you definitely couldn't grow and absolutely could not maintain if you didn't have strong account management and loyal customers. So those clients, those companies that were used to kind of like sell and forget, fire and forget, and didn't do a good job of nurturing their client base, lost a lot of customers because, you know, they went shopping for cheaper prices or availability with supply chain issues. Those clients of mine that had very strong account management in place, um, strong relationships uh, with their customers, and the customers had strong relationships with the company, they didn't lose those customers. You're right. It's so much more efficient, easier, more profitable to retain a good customer than to go and get a new one. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, what happened over the last couple of years is we saw companies um, lay off people permanently or or temporarily. And we also saw like on the buying side, um, you know, salespeople either get um, and marketing people, customer service people in some cases get laid off. We also saw people get sick, right, and have to stay home. And so what happened from an account management standpoint is that if you didn't have strong account management and multiple contact points in the company, and if your client didn't have multiple contact points inside of your company, when someone got sick or was sent home or had to stay home or got laid off, you lost contact with that customer because your only point of entry was that single person who now no longer could be reached. But if you had four or five really strong relationships, there was always someone to call to find out what was going on, to find out who else should be involved, to help shore up defenses, um, to make sure that that client relationship stayed buoyant and profitable, regardless of who the contact points were. It's a great trust builder to have more than one person involved so that you just know if, if Jim's not available, call Bob. If Sally's not available, call Jose or whatever. It's, it, it just feels so much better when you're on the buying side to know that there's more than one person who's got your back. Absolutely. And we saw that happen. I mean, there have been some very tragic and unfortunate things happen over the last couple of years with some of our clients. Um, and in one case, they almost lost a customer, a huge customer, because the, the customer um, lost touch with the sales rep and didn't know who else to call and got so irritated by, why won't this guy return my call? Why won't this guy return my call? Why won't this guy return my call? Turned out he was in the hospital and nobody knew the customer was calling. That by the time they figured out what was going on, the customer was already talking to other vendors. Now we were able to save it, (laughs) but they were literally, you know, pen in hand, almost signing a new contract simply because of this lack of contact. Right. And even without a pandemic, those things happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I love this quote from one of my clients, he said, you know, the pandemic really just revealed all of our poor sales practices. I, you know, we, we were in, you know, coming into this, we had gotten lazy, right? We were scooping up the business. Business was buoyant. Um, our industries were thriving. Uh, we, you know, we were, uh, we were lucky in many cases, just as long as we were present, we could get business. And when 
things slowed down, we realized where our weak spots were. And one of those was account management. That is a great quote. Thank you very much for that. Okay. So you had another very interesting idea in your book, which is that companies, some companies go overboard on customer centricity. Tell me how that happens (laughs) and what it looks like. (laughs) Well, there are all sorts of um, examples of companies who have tried to be so customer friendly that um, they actually lose money, right? You know, I always think about people, uh, Costco is an interesting example, and they've had to stop this where you could return anything at any time. And there's a classic story of some woman, um, you know, finding eating an apple pie, deciding she didn't like it and returning a second one like a year after she bought it, right? (laughs) You know, (laughs) things like that. (laughs) You know, um, department stores, again, who do this, you know, Sears is no longer a business and they had incredibly customer centric um, policies because they always believed, well, the customer is always right. And I look at as well, things like, um, uh, you know, Airbnb, you know, you may have noticed in communities all over the world that um, cities or counties are really cracking down on how you rent your places, who can rent, Um, they're putting in bylaws and restrictions because Airbnb has been so customer friendly. It's been an anything goes attitude. You can rent anything for any price at any time to any number of people and have any amount of parties, right? Mm-hmm. And so as a result, communities, they face massive community backlash in the communities that they're, you know, supposedly um, serving. And so they've also had to put restrictions in place. So that's what I mean by being too customer centric. It can cost you money. It can cost you brand reputation. Um, it can cost you um, access to markets. If you're not um, putting practices into place that protect the people around you that you serve, and of course, your business um, and its ability to change and move forward profitably. Yeah. And it's interesting that if you're a total pushover and will do anything the customer wants, in some ways you lose respect. You know, when, when I've had a problem and a vendor has said, well, what we do in this situation is, and it's not the thing I wanted the most, but it's something that seems fair and reasonable. I go, okay, I I got it. I can see why we, have, you know, both of us need to have our needs met here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Absolutely. Well, businesses have to remain profitable. You know, I, I believe that business has to remain profitable, but they also have to improve the community in which they work, right? Because, and ultimately, if they're not improving their community, both their external community and their internal community, they're not going to be become profitable. <laughs> right? yeah. they, they won't ever grow. So there is a balance definitely between the extreme of not caring about your customer at all and just focusing on the way you, you want to do business at all costs. Um, you know, the numbers, the metrics, the data, the velocity, and this um, you know, customer-centric focus. So another thing that I don't think you talk about in your book, but I think is a really interesting phenomena coming out of all this, you know, the way things are moving online is that consumers and just customers in general have so much more power than they used to, to influence social and community type policy. Like what's your stand on politics? What's your stand on, or, you know, what are you doing to help your community? Are you, do you think it's gone overboard? Do you, do you have clients that are just almost at the, in handcuffs due, due to what um, <laughs> the public is saying? Um, I don't see, I don't think that it's gone overboard. I think that most corporations have had to become hyper or acutely aware of of um, what people are saying online. And I think sales salespeople have 
realize they have to be careful, um, but they have to be present, right? So, you know, it goes back to the old saying, you know, we know, whatever, we don't talk about um, religion or politics, right? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. at, at the dinner table. Um, and those kinds of things we're seeing um, really play out in social media because it's really hurt companies. It's really hurt salespeople um, if they've made that mistake or crossed the line. That being said, we need people to show that they're engaged in their community, that they're community building, that they're promoting their customers' good work, that they're promoting their company's good work, um, and that they are engaged and present in an online conversation, um, just as they would have been in an offline conversation at a networking event. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think you're saying, be careful what you say, yes. but also... <laughs> find some safe things to say <laughs> about what you're supporting in your community, what, how you're involved, how you're um, kind of doing your part for the social good, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, social good of the community, right? So how are, you know, how are you participating in advance? How are you um, participating in uh, the community in which you serve? So we see salespeople, for example, um, uh, you know, I've got an interesting one, a, a client in the agronomy business. So he sells fertilizer, right? Um, but he routinely posts stories about organic. Um, he routinely posts stories about alternatives to fertilizer, of course, his own product, because he wants to get a conversation going, but he does it in a professional way. He's not slamming the organic movement, um, mm-hmm. but he, I'm sure he could create some really strong galvanization. Um, he's not, you know, um, saying that he's better necessarily. He posts things like that in a way to just get people talking about all the different ways that you can grow food. That's interesting. We've got clients in the oil and gas industry who are promoting their use of solar technology on their gas stations and talking about electric trucks and electric cars. So, you know, they're getting a conversation started in a very neutral, professional way in areas that are still controversial to their business. But they're not getting online and, you know, blaming governments or presidents for high oil prices. They're not, you know, in, they're encouraging people to vote, but they're not telling people who to vote for. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. A lot of it is common sense, but it's very tricky terrain for a lot of people. I think it kind of spooks a lot of people to to say anything online. Like, oh, what if somebody doesn't like this? You know, you know, in the book, we talk about a con- um, a formula that I have called the Tempo Triad where I encourage salespeople to engage in conversations across three different media platforms, um, you know, in three different ways. And this is a way to do it um, incredibly and stay neutral and stay safe because one way is your own or your company's own uh, unique content. So, you know, articles or videos about your product solutions, you know, sharing a success story, how-to tips, analyst papers, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, the second thing we want you to do is to share something your customer has posted. So if your customer has posted a success story about us, if they've posted, you know, that they've done a build for Habitat for Humanity or sponsored a local golf tournament, you know, whatever that looks like, celebrated 20 years in the business, share that. And then the third way is to just comment or ask a question on something that either a customer or a prospect or a contact has posted. So if they have posted a story on something good they've done or a win, even just commenting to say, hey, congratulations, love to see your success. Or ask a question, hey, you know, interesting about that solar technology on your gas stations, how many more are you rolling out this year? The point is just showing your 
contacts and your customers that you're listening to them. And if you follow that rule, it would be very hard <laughs> to um, fall into the trap of posting something that would be so controversial that it would get you banned from a platform or a customer site. Right. So obviously LinkedIn is a good place to do this. Secondly, any, yes. if you have like an industry specific um, community online, that would be terrific. What other mass social media venues would you recommend that people be posting and engaging in? Yeah, now this is, it's always a tricky question because it depends on the nature of the business. So for most companies, it's either um, Twitter or Facebook. So Facebook is used heavily by a lot of my clients who are selling products that are very visual. So of all places, um, like the farm equipment business, I've got a, a, a superstar seller for John Deere. And he's constantly, every day, he's posting pictures of another happy customer, you know, driving off on their lawn tractor <laughs> or their gator or whatever it looks like. Um, and so because he knows his clients are on that platform, whereas other uh, companies we work with, um, they use Twitter in that way as well. So, you know, you have to, this is the hardest thing for sellers, especially sellers who are um, selling in different generations um, than their customers, is we have to say, let's go where our customers are and sort of throw away the, I don't like that platform. I, you know, I don't care. It, I had a, sell, a young seller say to me today, I hate the virtual world. It's artificial. It gets in the way of existing um, relationships, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of went on an anti-social media rant. I said, well, that's fine for you personally, but 75% of your customers are on LinkedIn. And so are you just going to ignore the platform that they're using to promote their businesses? You can't do that. So in the words of my father, suck it up, princess. Yeah, that's interesting. You talk about how some companies almost confuse their customer with too many choices. Can you say more about that? Well, we see customers who, this is another um, version of being too customer centric. Um, so an example that I give is you could place orders through text, through email, through calling your customer service um, assistant to calling your sales rep to, um, I think there was an online ordering system I mean, the, I, the joke I use is I expected them to have like a telex machine or a fax machine. In fact, they did have a fax machine. They did have a fax machine that you could fax them in, but no telex, thank goodness. <laughs> and what would happen is, you know, customers would get confused as to the easiest way to do this and the most accurate. And sellers would get texts like, hey, I need to reorder. And then it would go back and forth. Reorder what? Reorder what we had last time. What did you order last time? Well, just ship us the same thing to the same address. Well, we shipped it to nine people last time. Like, you know, and it would take all this long time. And so when we built and kind of went through a buying journey map for this customer, we realized that if they streamlined the choices, Amazon is the extreme, right? You know, maybe need to go to one only. But if they streamlined the choices, then the customer, it was easy for the customer to order and the order was accurate because it wasn't going through multiple hands in multiple formats that had to be inputted multiple times. The order was processed more accurately and more quickly um, and got, and the delivery was made more accurate, 
promptly and quickly. And so by reducing choices, they actually improve the customer experience. That makes sense. And also the customer's not always thinking, is there a different way I should be doing this? Is there a better way? No, they're just thinking, this is the way. This is how you do it. (laughs) Yes, because the customer is going to default to what's easiest for them. And frankly, what's easiest for them is walking through their warehouse to reorder industrial supplies and texting as they go, you know, I need more grease. Oh, okay. (laughs) You know, and that's it. (laughs) Uh, It's not always easy for a company to figure out what they mean and, you know, buy when and how much and, um, and to what address. So good, good. Okay. So Colleen, what metrics do you use to measure your own life? So I'm sure that you have revenue goals for your business and probably, I I don't know what else. Do you have any other (laughs) metrics that you use for how you just measure the quality and quantity of of your success in life? Wow. That's a great question. And it's something that I think I struggle with personally. Um, You know, being a salesperson by nature, I'm drawn to revenue goals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that that's healthy for anyone, um, let alone a you know a small business owner or a solo practitioner. So you know, I use metrics like um, you know hours worked or time off. Um, you know, vacations. Um, am I able to plan vacations and, and actually go on vacations? Um, you know, time off during the week. Am I able to you know set I'm very goal oriented. So setting goals like, you know, every Friday off or every Friday afternoon off. Um, I set health goals for myself as well. Uh, You know, I'm an avid runner. And so I like to be able to run a certain number of races a year um, healthily, right? (laughs) As I Mm -hmm. (laughs) eat, can I get through this injury free? (laughs) Right. And of course, you know, time off with, uh, you know, family time, right? With, uh, With my husband, with my dog, being able to visit my family. I think those kinds of metrics are really important for people to be paying attention to. And for those corporate sellers out there, it's frightening to me how many of you, and all have fallen victim to this as well, pride yourself in the, you know, 24 hour, you know, seven day a week, always on my customers, even if I'm, you know, scuba diving in Belize, I'll make sure to get back to my customers. Whereas we can't serve our customers effectively if we don't get refreshed and renewed. I agree that downtime for me, especially like you, uh, sports is really healthy downtime because your brain is engaged in a completely different way that just seems to do a defrag or something. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I'm just so much smarter when I get back from doing something that's, you know, a difficult exercise. <laughs> well, I think there are studies um, that, that came out a few years ago that showed that the best way to, you know, sort of re-engage your brain is to turn it off to, and do something completely different, right? And I mm-hmm. always found when I rode a motorcycle, for example, because you have to be so focused on the task at hand, you can't be daydreaming while you're riding down the highway. You have to focus on exactly what's here in front of you. You always come back refreshed. I find it's the same for me with running. You know, it's my meditation. And I'm sure with your, you know, with your mountain biking and kite surfing, you can't be trying to solve the world's problems while you're kite surfing or you're probably going to end up <laughs> right in the right. water, right? <laughs> yeah, we've been mountain biking recently a lot. And it's probably similar to motorcycle where if Rob just asked me like a simple question while mountain biking, I like totally lose my focus on the trail and I start to go <laughs> off or something. So yeah, exactly. you, you're just like reacting, reacting, reacting. And I think it's really healthy for your brain. 
to do something just completely different. So I, I sometimes ask this question of other folks when I'm interviewing them on the podcast, and I'm curious to hear your answer. What did you really love doing when you were 11 years old, Colleen? When I was 11. So I think, uh, what grade are you in in grade 11? For me, it would have been sports. Um, I, at 11 years old, I was dancing, um, you know, classic ballet, which I loved. And I was playing soccer, but I also started about that age running track. And I loved, loved, loved running track. Um, you know, I just with my friends on the relay teams, we just had so much fun. I, I remember sort of the, the joy of <laughs> sprinting <laughs> around the track. Yeah. And I can see that not only in your running life, but you've maintained that uh, attitude of just loving the camaraderie and the speed. You're a fast person. <laughs> you get <Yes>. stuff done. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love I love the speed and I. I, I love the um, I love the the competition, the spirit of competition. You know, um, the sport. I still find myself, even today, um, I often um, wish I could just like take the two weeks off to go um, to you know Olympic track events. One of the one of these days, I will because I will park myself in front of the TV or one of my computer monitors will always be on during the track and field. <laughs> that, cool. that fun spirit of competition, never knowing quite what's going to happen, having you know being in a race, anything can happen at any time is really fun and exciting for me. It is fun to watch, and you can just feel their heart pumping. I mean, the speed <laughs> yeah. at which their legs. I mean, it looks like a cartoon <laughs> or something. They're just like, <laughs> it's totally exactly. mind-blowing in the Olympics. Totally mind-blowing. Absolutely. I love it. What do you wish you could t- explore more if time were no issue? That's an interesting, um, it's the it's the what. I immediately went to where do you wish you could explore more. Um, and having come back from a trip to Africa in uh, and being on safari for three weeks, I immediately went to Africa. <laughs> that is absolutely where I wish I could explore more if time was no issue. You know, I I think what would I explore? I would explore more about the, you know, the, the true psychology of um, success, you know, of people who are, you know, physically and mentally successful. Um, I'd spend more time diving into how people are um, finding balance and how they are really in living a truly fulfilled life. I love that idea. I wish I could just have everyone in the world have as much fulfillment as I have. And as I perceive that you have, you do what you're great at and you have time to spend with your family and your sports and you're helping, you're helping people and companies so much. So I really admire that that aspect of you. And I'm, I admire the fact that you want to find out even more about it. <laughs> well, I think because, you know, I think you and I do it maybe naturally, or, or it's been learned, I'm sure, you know, through our coaching and mentoring. Um, but I think that it's hard, that, that is a subject that I find hard to teach others rather than just saying to them, take more time off, do what you love. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's a helpful way <laughs> to teach it. Yeah, I think it really is um, fundamentally at the core of uh, human happiness and and business success as well. Right. Do what you love. That's a great point to end on. It's been so fun having you on the podcast today, Colleen. I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed exploring deeper some of the great ideas that are in your book. How would you recommend that people engage with you if they want to learn more about your fabulous 
sales strategy and sales training practice and all that you do? The very best way to stay in touch with me is through our website at engagedselling.com or LinkedIn by following me on LinkedIn, Colleen Francis um, uh, on LinkedIn. And there you can get access to all of my content, my videos, my audios, my written, and find the links to my book, which of course is available at Amazon or all your favorite booksellers. Yes, I would recommend everyone who's interested in Colleen's uh, sales wisdom to watch her videos. They're short, they're to the point, and they just give you these nuggets of wisdom that are um, so helpful. So thank you so much for being with us today, Colleen. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for hosting. This was really fun. Um, I enjoyed it, learned a lot as well, and appreciate you taking the time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. You can find out more about the show at satilly.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support.